Good morning, church. I do want to welcome everybody here on this cool, wet day. Uh, if you're visiting with us, we're very glad you're here. If you're listening online and you avoided some of the weather, we're also very, very glad that you're here. We're continuing in our sermon series called The Thanksgiving Table. And our goal throughout this series has been to kind of transition our thinking from an altar-ritualized, past-focused mentality to a table, community, present-focused fellowship with Christ mentality. So at this point in time in our sermon series, we are approaching the Passover meal in Luke chapter 22. And Luke chapter 22 actually opens with the assertion that everybody in Jerusalem and, and all throughout the land of promise was thinking about the Passover meal. The Passover meal was actually the celebration of the birthday of Israel. This is the meal that commemorated God leading the Israelites from bondage and slavery and darkness and misery to light and life and hope and peace and towards the land of promise. In the kingdom of Israel, we often don't think about this reality, but some 300,000 lambs would be slaughtered to commemorate the Passover. And that doesn't include the, the Israelites and the Jews that were participating in the Passover in the diaspora, the, the area uh, surrounding the Near East where God's people would have been scattered. And so Luke gives us a, an inside view of what's going on in the upper room as the Passover is approaching. And while, while Jews, 300,000, were, were inspecting their lambs in anticipation of the upcoming slaughter to commemorate the Passover, the one true Passover lamb, the Lord Jesus Christ, was himself preparing to be served as the sacrifice for the new covenant. And religious leaders were plotting against him on how they might crucify him and end his earthly ministry. So there are a few things that I want to talk about today as we approach our meal of the Lord's Supper, and they all emphasize true, authentic discipleship as embodied in the life and the lifestyle of our Lord Jesus Christ and based on his admonishments as he's taking of the emblems of his supper. I opened a Sunday school class with this metaphor. I didn't do this in the first service, but this struck me, and it's too rich of a metaphor not to use. So sometimes in preaching, you just think about these things, and it's like, I can't not say that again. I want to see a show of hands this morning if you have ever been blessed with the great honor of eating imitation crab meat. If that's you, I want to see a show of hands. God bless each of y'all with your hands up. Now put your hands down. If you did not raise your hand, I'm praying for you today that you would go out and you would remedy the travesty that is you not having had the opportunity to partake of imitation crab meat. Now, those of you guys that have had imitation crab meat, you know what I'm talking about. It actually, somehow they actually have like wrapped it around itself. So it's multi-layered. And they've dyed it with these different colors. It's got kind of a rubbery sort of a tangy, kind of a, 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 a gelatinous sort of explosion going on. It's like growing up, and if you don't know what I'm talking about, man, I'm sorry. You got, like I said, you've got to go and make this right sometime today. It's an immediately or sooner type of a necessity, okay? 
So I had this growing up. My, my parents were divorced when I was young, and my mom would get this imitation crab meat. And uh, it, was like the, the, it was like the holy grail of snack food at my house growing up. Until I had what I call a paradigm shift. And there's those, there, there, there are those times of growth in life where how I was doing things now no longer compares to how I currently am doing things. About age 13 or 14, I had, for the first time in my life, a taste of real, authentic crab meat. Whoa! Whoa! All of a sudden now, the imitation crab meat that I really enjoyed, and I really did as a kid growing up, I really did like it, now it was like something that it would barely be okay for me to feed a dog. <laughs> so once you've really had the real thing, it, it's hard to go back and enjoy that one thing that at one point in time was fulfilling. And so uh, for me, this is kind of the attitude and the approach for us to the Lord's Supper. We should be served by Jesus, and in this moment, we should fully appreciate his level of surrender, his sacrifice, and his obedience. And in Luke 22, he embodies these characteristics, and we're going to pick up the story in Luke chapter 22 and verse 14. And first, I'm going to talk to you about the surrender of Christ. Luke chapter 22, verse 14, the Bible says this, When the hour had come, Jesus and his apostles reclined at the table, and he said to them, I have eagerly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. For I tell you that I will not eat it again until it finds fulfillment in the kingdom of God. It's the, it's, it's the season of Thanksgiving. I want to share with you something that's a Thanksgiving tradition that I lived through for probably the first 16 years of my life. And I'm using this metaphor because this is a teaching on the table of Thanksgiving, and we're quickly approaching the season of Thanksgiving uh, right here in our, our uh, country. So up till about the age of 16, my mom's parents, my nan and pop, I call them, would have purchased all the Christmas gifts that they were going to buy for Christmas by the point in time we celebrated Thanksgiving at their house. So I eagerly anticipated, I eagerly desired to go to my mom's parents for Thanksgiving, not really to eat the food, but to go to the room where the presents were stored. And so the, the, the method of operation was to try and pick the packages up in like a gentle shake and try and assess based on size and shape what might be under the wrapping paper. And so we eagerly desired to get over there and to try and figure out which present was in fact the one gift that we were most looking forward to opening on Christmas Day. And then we'd say, okay, I want to open this one. I think it's the one that has the gift that I'm really looking for. And so we got to open it. And one of my favorite uh, Thanksgivings was I opened the Sega Genesis that I had been hoping to get on Christmas, the day of Thanksgiving. And man, I was like in heaven. And some of us approach our discipleship in the Lord Jesus Christ the exact same way. What does Jesus Christ say he eagerly desires? He's saying, I eagerly desire to eat this Passover with you. What does that mean for the Lord Jesus Christ? He's saying, I know it is God's will that I am this Passover lamb, this spotless offering once and for all 
to bridge the gap between humanity and God. I have eagerly desired this moment where I can surrender my everything out of obedience to the will and the plan of God. This is the exact opposite of selfishness and self-centeredness and is the very definition of what true, authentic, Christ-like discipleship is about where the thing I most eagerly desire is the ability to surrender. But lots of us in Christ are just like Trent was at age 14 before Thanksgiving. I'm self-focused. I'm self-centered. I'm selfish. It's about me. It's about what I want. It's about what makes me feel good. It's about what's easy for me. And lots of us approach the table or approach our relationship with Jesus the same way. I eagerly desire, Jesus, for you to make me feel good in the same way getting to open a Christmas present before Christmas made me feel good. But let's not have a discussion, Lord, about surrender, authentic surrender. And please, let's not take it as far as that being the thing which I should most eagerly desire. Because that sure doesn't involve 100% of the time what Trent wants. But that's what Jesus is saying here. When we come to his table, he eagerly desires to serve us. And that's the second thing he mentions is, I have eagerly desired in verse 15 to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. What's the surrender of Christ about? It is about being obedient should it cost my suffering. Isaiah chapter 53 verses 4 and 5 is an Old Testament prophetic reference to the coming Messiah. The Bible says this, Surely he has borne our grief and carried our sorrows. Yet we did esteem him stricken, smitten of God, and afflicted. But he was wounded for our iniquities, and the chastisement of our peace was upon him. And with his stripes we are healed. There's five things here that Jesus Christ carries with him in his moment of greatest suffering that he then can liberate us from having to be trapped and experiencing. The first thing is our grief. He was wounded for our iniquities, smitten of God and afflicted. Surely he has borne our what? Our grief. I would define grief as deep sorrow, especially that caused by the death of something or someone. Now remember, the prophet Isaiah is prophesying to the southern kingdom of Judah. At this point in time, the Israelites were divided in two. There was a civil war in Israel. And the northern kingdom had been overthrown by the Assyrians. And as Isaiah is saying this, I have to assume that Isaiah's audience would have felt grief at the reality that their brothers and sisters had been ripped from the land of promise which God said he would bestow upon them. And I'm then reminded of the things in my life that cause me grief that if I reflect upon, bring about those emotions associated with that grief. But our Lord Jesus Christ is the God even of things that we perceive in our life as dead. And he's the bringer of new life. And in this passage in Isaiah, which theologians call the suffering servant oration, we see that Jesus Christ not only bears our grief and is a renewer of new life, but he bears our sorrow, which would be deep distress caused by our misfortune. What does Isaiah say? Surely he has borne our grief and carried our sorrows. Remember, Isaiah is speaking to the nation of Judah This was a nation that was about to be sieged by the Babylonians and would eventually fall. 
And he's saying, even in the midst of that struggle, even in the midst of that trial, even in the midst of that difficulty, do not lose hope and don't lose faith that there will be coming one who will restore. And if I were to draw a bridge between that time and this, it would be that whatever it is in life that is causing you sorrow, when you come to the table and you are served by the Lord Jesus Christ, lay upon him your sorrow. And exchange your sorrow for hope and peace and joy because you know that the same God who serves you at his table is the same God who is sovereign Lord over whatever it is that you're dealing with. The next thing that Isaiah mentions is that he was wounded for our iniquities. That's the willingness to sin, our immorality. And that's the source and root of all problems we face here in this life. It's Trent's sin It's my willingness to turn my back on God and serve what Trent assumes is in his own best interests. Yes, the Lord Jesus Christ can even cleanse you from that based on his suffering. And as I approach the table, it's that fact that I should be mindful of, that his sacrifice can cleanse me of the very things that cause the most misery in my life. And when we're at that place where we realize that Jesus has borne my grief, my sorrow, and my iniquity through his suffering, then what naturally follows is my own sense of peace. The chastisement of my peace was on him, and what? By his stripes I am healed. This church is cause for celebration. But there aren't any people in the church, as a rule, that are party animals. That's an that's a uncomfortable thing for me to even propagate, is that we ought to be partying in church. But the world is giving off this idea that they're the ones who are having the most fun. And that the greatest joy is to be had partying the way they say to party. And I'm here to tell you this morning that if the Lord Jesus Christ bore your grief, your sorrow, and your iniquity in his suffering, and he gave you peace and healing and hope and purpose, that that's cause for rejoice and celebration. And so often we approach our table Two people are wanting to party this morning. I want to hang out with y'all after church. Everybody else is cold. It's November, all this rain. Forget about it. And that's what the surrender of Jesus Christ is intended to demonstrate to us as he's here serving his apostles. I've eagerly desired to eat this with you before I suffer. The hallmarks of an authentic disciple, we eagerly desire to surrender to God and to suffer for that surrender if that's what's called for. I want to continue the story in Luke 22. I'm going to pick up in verse 17. The Bible says this, After taking the cup, he gave thanks and said, "This, Take this and divide it among you. For I tell you, I will not drink again from the fruit of the vine until the kingdom of God comes. And he took the bread and gave thanks and broke it and gave it to them, saying, This is my body I give for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, after the supper, he took the cup, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood, which is poured out for you. That phrase in, in Luke twenty two seventeen, after taking the cup, this phrase, he gave thanks, is the Greek word eucharisteo. It's the source of our beautiful word eucharist, which many theolog- theologians use to indicate the Lord's Supper. And with what attitude did he pick the cup up that symbolized the sacrifice he would soon make? One of thanks. 
I'm reminded of the words of the writer of Hebrews in the 12th chapter, the second verse. The Bible says this, For the joy set before him, he endured the cross, scorning its shame, and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. For the what set before him? For the misery? No. For the difficulty set before him? No. For the joy. And I want to redefine, church, for you the definition of joy. I think somewhere along the lines in our life, we're probably taught at some point that joy is all about material things and that the easier they are to acquire and the quicker you can get them, the greater the joy. And the life of the Lord Jesus Christ and his message in the upper room to his apostles is opposite that. It was for the joy set before him he endured the cross. It is in moments that we suffer for the cause of Christ that we experience the greatest joy. It is in being obedient to his life and to his message and to his ministry that we're fulfilled authentically, not with some substitution. And that is the purpose for which we were created. To really be able to approach our sacrifice with great joy. The body of our Lord was broken. He gives the bread and gives thanks again and says, this is my body given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. There is an element of remembering when we approach the Lord's Supper, and that is appropriate. But this would be the difference in us remembering the time we were freed from the bondage of sin versus a time in our past where a small little victory was won. This is, the, this is the true celebration that someone would experience when they realize that Jesus has brought them from death to life, from darkness to light, from misery to joy, from despair to hope, from a loss of any idea that anything in my life could ever occur that is beautiful, to living in beauty day in, day out, moment by moment. The next thing that Jesus does is after supper he takes a cup saying, this is the cup which represents the new covenant in my blood which is poured out for you. <clears throat> I want to draw your minds to Philippians chapter 2, verse 7. There's a word here that indicates literally the pouring out of the Lord Jesus Christ. It's in this phrase, made himself nothing. That's NIV. The Apostle Paul says, have this mind in you which was also in Christ Jesus who being in the form of God did not think equality with God something to be used to his advantage. But instead, he made himself nothing and took on the nature of a servant. His teaching here embodies that idea. Think of a bucket. Think of a bucket that you have filled to the top. Now imagine that's you. The, the pattern of the Lord Jesus Christ is that you hold nothing back for yourself but that you're willing to pour everything out in obedience to God. And as he is literally serving the disciples, he is getting ready to absolutely serve himself up as the Passover lamb and willingly give himself up to his accusers and die a death and on the cross say, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. That's black belt level spiritual discipline and there is nothing on life that is as fulfilling as that. And that you're even given an opportunity to live after that pattern should be cause for celebration. We ought to get our party on. Picking up the story again, you would think that the same people who had seen the, the ministry and the message and the power of our Lord Jesus Christ would get this. 
they would understand that the Passover lamb who was going to initiate a new covenant by his blood was calling them into a life of service and sacrifice. Let's pick up Luke chapter 22, verse 24, see if they get it. A dispute also arose among them, the apostles and disciples in the upper room, as to which of them was considered to be the greatest. Jesus said to them, the kings of the Gentiles lorded over them, but those who exercise authority over them call themselves benefactors. You are not to be like that church. Instead, the greatest among you should be like the youngest and the one who rules like the one who serves. For who is greater, the one who is at the table or the one who serves? Is it not the one who is at the table? But I am among you as the one who serves. You are those who have stood by me in my trials, and I confer on you a kingdom just as my Father conferred on me so that you may eat and drink at my table in my kingdom and sit on thrones judging the 12 tribes of Israel. How unfortunate that the same men who Jesus says in verse 28 are those who stood by him in his trials are the same ones who fail to grasp the truth of the teaching of Jesus. He has just shared with them the secret to unlock joy and peace and purpose in life. And they're going back to their old way of thinking. How quickly we are to be exposed to truth and then walk out this door and stand face to face with whatever issues confronting us and turn our back on Jesus and find peace in our own strength and then failure as we try and resolve whatever it is that we're dealing with in the moment. Or maybe worse yet, how many of us leave this place after hearing the need to surrender and sacrifice and serve and get entranced and enticed by something in this life? And as a result, we turn our back, and now we're the 16-year-old kid the day before Thanksgiving who's all excited and eagerly desiring to open the present that most benefits him. This is the same attitude of the disciples at this point in time in Scripture. In church, that's our attitude often as we approach the table. It's not about surrender. It's not about sacrifice. And it's not about service. It's about self. And when we're caught up in what we want and what, what's best for us and what's easiest for us, we are choosing the pathway of misery. And what Jesus is saying here when we come to the table is, remember me. Remember my sacrifice. Remember that life is found in me. Now something I really appreciate about this is that Jesus says the old guys in the religious circles should be like the young guys. Can I get an amen from some of you young guys out there? It's like, I'm saying, Jesus, you really know what's up, man. It is us young guys that got it going on, all right? No, but this is a patriarchal kind of uh, hierarchic approach to religion in, in, in this particular day and age. And so at religious gatherings, who would have been being served was the religious leaders of this day. And who would have done the serving would have been the young men. And what Jesus is saying is, no, no, no. Don't let your position steal from you your opportunity for blessing. Man, it's not you, religious leaders, seasoned, mature men that should be being served, but it's you who should serve, just like you're pressuring the younger men to serve. And then he goes on to say, who's greatest at the, ta at the, at the meal? Is it not the one who's at the table? 
And so then what should you desire? Should you desire to be at the table or the one serving? Jesus is saying overwhelmingly, there's no comparison. The blessing is to be had in being the server. And such is the great paradox of the Christian faith. You want to know who the most joyful person ever to walk the earth was? It was our Lord Jesus Christ. And he's also the one who lived perfectly selflessly. And that's what the enemy so desperately wants to deceive you into thinking is that yourself is the way for your happiness and joy. And Jesus is saying, no, man, no, young lady. The way to happiness is through surrender, sacrifice, and service. There's a story of a young guy that really, for me, embodies this attitude of service. I think, I think for us in church, it's, it's hard. Lots of these concepts are so abstract. I understand the need to serve and that, yes, Trent, joy and celebration should be found when I encounter the table and I'm served by Jesus Christ. But how can I live that out? What does that look like day to day? Because what happens for a lot of us is then I'm, willing, then I'm wanting to serve, not out of obedience to God and as a wor- an act of worship to Him, but so you'll notice and you'll reciprocate back to me some measure of praise, or I'll serve as long as I think at some level there's something in it for me. We mutate the idea of service back to an idea of self. And that's what Jesus is speaking against. There's a story of a guy who grew up in Canada, and on April 12th, he dips his right leg in the Atlantic Ocean on a mission of service. It was 1980, the first few days of his marathon of hope, in Canada, he's met with gale force winds, heavy rains, and a snowstorm. But Terry Fox, the 22-year-old man on a mission to serve those suffering from cancer, kept going. Fox grew up in British Columbia. He was a distance runner and a basketball player. Not the most talented person on the field or on the track, many would say, but the most dedicated In 1977, when he was 19 years old, he was diagnosed with a form of bone cancer. Doctors decided his right leg would have to be amputated. This is the same leg that April 12, 1980, he dips in the Atlantic Ocean on a mission to jog across the nation of Canada from the Atlantic coast to the Pacific coast to raise awareness for people struggling with cancer. What he'd say in interviews is that some of the most transformational times he had ever spent in his young life was sitting in the cancer ward while young men and women were getting chemotherapy and beds being removed and replaced with new people who needed chemo and people who had succumbed to cancer. By late August, his Marathon of Hope started in April. By late August, he was exhausted before his runs began. On September 1st, outside Thunder Bay in Ontario, he was forced to stop briefly after he suffered an intense fit of coughing and experienced pains in his chest. A few miles later, short of breath, with continued chest pain, he asked his team to drive him to the hospital. He feared immediately that he had run his last kilometer. The next day, Fox held a tearful press conference during which he announced that his cancer had returned and spread to his lungs. He was forced to end his run after 143 days, having run a total of 3,339 miles. If you do the math, that's just a little bit more than a marathon a day with only one leg. To date, Terry Fox's Marathon of Hope has raised $650 million 
for cancer research. Before he died, he said this, if something should happen to me on the road, I would die a happy man. What road are you on, church? What are you running from or what are you running to? Are you running from the challenge of our Lord Jesus Christ to really live in joy and surrender and sacrifice for God and serve others? Are you running from that? And are you running towards joy and peace and hope that really can only be found in God? And are you doing it for the benefit of others? Or are you sitting on the sidelines out of the race, miserable and defeated, because you have yet to fully surrender to God? Man, when we come to the table, it's that moment in time where we can remind ourselves, man, we're on the race. We are in the will of God, and we're being served by Jesus, and it is through that fulfillment and nourishment that we can stay the course. I'm going to pray whatever the need is in your life. Maybe you need to repent. Maybe you need to be baptized into Christ. Whatever it is, I challenge you to get in the race and to surrender and sacrifice and to be ready to serve. We want to surround you and love you while you make those decisions. Let's pray. Lord, thank you so much for Jesus. That thanks just how do we even summarize our gratitude? And we can't, but we use the best words that we have. And that word is thanks. Thanks for the cross. Thanks for your son and his service and the joy that he experienced. And, and that we can have true, authentic joy in him. I just ask that you'd help our approach to the table be one of celebration and not misery because you've brought us from death to life in Jesus. Some are here this morning. They need to repent or be clothed in Christ in baptism. I ask that any who have a need, you would, you would challenge to come forward this morning. In Jesus' name I pray.